are warmed with worship this morning to sing about our wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, one who was prophesied to come, one who could beat sin, Satan, and death, and then came and did exactly that. Come out of that grave, Lord, and we have been rejoicing ever since. And so, Lord, thank you for the church. Thank you that you love us and you died for us. And we are your children. Hear our praises and our teaching and our preaching this morning. May all that we sing, say, and do bring glory to you. Father, we do lift up the Brown family. Give Josh and Victoria strength as mom and dad watch their little one go through these surgeries. And I pray you would just cause them to lean on you in a unique way. And we would be blessed as we watch them trust you. But we do pray for a little grace. And Lord, please keep your hands upon him. And cause him to recover from this, Lord. And give him many, many years to come to know you and to serve you, Lord. We do pray for that entire family, Lord. Father, thank you for our missionaries that are scattered all around the world. We're so grateful to be in partnership with them. Please strengthen them, provide for them. Thank you for a church that gives so well so we can stand with them, Lord, in the gospel ministry. Now for us here, Lord, may we incline our ears to your word now. May we hear the truth for ourselves and not for someone else. And may we apply it and live for you with great joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The introduction to 1 Corinthians has taken me two Sundays to do an introduction to a book. And you say, well, Scott, why does that happen? Well, the book of Corinthians is just an amazing book. It is uh, so uniquely written into a very distinct issues that were going on in that church. But like so many things that, that uh, happened in the past, they're bound to repeat themselves. And so there's so much to learn from it. But it's a church that was greatly disturbed by not being able to deal with sin. It had let the world in instead of keeping the world out. And it was a problem. But I don't want you to think it was just uh, the church in Corinth. It probably is the greatest example of the churches that struggled in the New Testament. But there were others. And I want to start with James chapter 4, where Pastor Jerry read. And we'll start there in a way of an introduction. Turn with me to James chapter 4. Here, James is probably, that or Galatians is one of the first books written. They're written probably within the same year. And so James is an early book written to the church. The church is wrestling with coming out of religion, right? They're trying to come out of Judaism and, and all the works and the things that you shouldn't do and you should do and all of those things. And guess what's waiting for them? Well, Satan's waiting for them. He wants to introduce them out of religion into worldliness. And so the early church battled with worldliness, much like the church of 2021 battles with it. And so here we see James challenging this early church. He starts with chapter 4, verse 1. What are the quarrels? What are, what are these conflicts among you? The church is battling. It's internal battles that are going on. Isn't that the source of your pleasures that weighs war of your members? They're pursuing pleasure versus God. Isn't, I mean, let's be honest. Isn't that easy to do? It's very easy to let our flesh desire the things of the world versus the things of God. It's a daily battle for all of us, isn't it? But yet, here, James and these elders of the early church are, are after this. You're, you lust and you do, you do not have. There's this great desire and you commit murder. Maybe not physical murder, but in their minds there was hatred in the church, right? Christ equates hatred and murder together. And so does John in his epistle. He says, you are envious and cannot obtain. So you fight and curl. You, you want something so bad and you can't get it. And then you take it out on others. 
Hmm, sounds like maybe some homes. And, um, but it, here it is in the church. You do not have because you do not ask. And then he qualifies that statement. Verse 3, you ask and you do not see because you ask with wrong motives. So just spend it on your own pleasures. There's no goal to glorify the Lord with your income. There's no goal to glorify the Lord with the things that God gives. It was just a goal to have more, to have more. And it was, it was tearing the church apart, this early church. He uses strong language in verse 4, you adulteress. Well, what's adulterer? One who cheats on another one, right? And so who's the church cheating on, in a sense? They're cheating on Christ. They're cheating on the one who has purchased their salvation. And, and then he reminds them, and this statement has been a verse, James 4.4 4 has always been a verse that has challenged me in my own personal life and, and leading my own family. Do, do you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? And again, we're, our, our goal is to get the First Corinthians here and understand that book a little more, but just think about what is friendship? Well, I love my friends. If my friends asked me to do something, I would do whatever I could to help them. And here, this friendship with the world has caused hostility towards God because you can't love both, right? You can't serve both man and wealth and God. Jesus made that very clear. And so there's hostility here. This is why homes and marriages and many churches around this country have so many difficulties in them. They're trying to serve the world. They're, they're, they're not opening the doors for the church to go to the world. They're opening the doors into the church from, and the, allowing the world to come in. And it creates great hostility. We're God's people. We're blood-bought children of God. We don't belong to the world. In fact, if anything, he robbed us from the world. And yet, here in the early church, as well as today, the world continues to invade the church. Notice he says in the end of verse 4, Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's quite a difficult statement, isn't it? This is where we find the, the Corinth church. And of course, the answer is a love for Christ and his word. Notice this in verse 5. Or do you think that the scriptures speak to no purpose? The Bible talks about this from the beginning. Oh, the world and sin war against our soul, right? Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, wars against our soul. This has always been the problem. But notice he says this statement. I love this. He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in you. So when they're right there, we know he's still talking about Christians. Because non-saved, unsaved people don't have the spirit of God. So there it's reminding us that yes, we can live worldly at times. But he put his spirit within us at salvation. And the reason that I think the answer is the love for Christ and his word, because that's what the spirit does. When you and I don't sequester the spirit of God, when we allow the spirit of God to work free in our life, to flow through every aspect of our life, every room of our life, his goal is always to spotlight Christ and his word. That's the spotlight ministry of the spirit. And here James reminds the early church, look, God is jealous for the freedom of the Spirit. When we look at the book of Corinthians, we begin to realize that they had quenched the Spirit. They were a self-centered church that had fell into disarray. But notice James gives hope. But he, God, gives a greater grace. Therefore, he said, God opposes the proud. Just stop right there. It's a strong word, particularly the Greek and Hebrew term for that gives the idea that God withholds. He kind of gives you the stiff arm. <laughs> Does anybody want God stiff arming you? I think that's a pretty tough stiff arm. He holds off the proud. 
well, I don't need that. <laughs> I have enough difficulties in my life. I need the Lord. And so pride holds up the Lord. It, it, it sequesters the Spirit of God to guide and direct. But notice the last phrase here. But he gives grace to the humble. And I think this is Paul's goal. And as difficult as this letter is, we start to work our way through the book of Corinthians. The goal is to cause and help those Corinthian church, help us today in 2021 to be men and women, boys and girls, who humble themselves under the lordship of, the Lord, of our Lord Jesus Christ and receive his grace. What a beautiful, beautiful reminder. Well, in 1 Corinthians, Paul questions the church as to what degree they were going to live out the resurrected life. Resurrection is a huge theme. Hold 50, chapter 15 dedicated towards it. What are you going to do with your resurrected life from the dead, because you were dead in your sins, with the Jesus Christ, with Jesus Christ who is resurrected? In a world and in the church, there's tons of suspicion, right? There's suspicion, there's mistrust, there's fear, there's doubt. There's just sinfulness that, that occupied this first century church. And they would be held captive by it. And that's what Paul's after. Are you going to be held captive by this sinful distrust that you have in God and other people? Or will you, and I think this is where he's after, will you be known by joy and hope and peace? And will you be known by genuine love? The greatest chapter on love written in the Bible is in this, in this letter. Chapter 13. Will you be known as men and women Believers who love Christ, love his word, and love each other. Now certainly that was the goal of Paul's love and attention to the Corinth church and to the rest as we read the scriptures. But listen, Satan had a whole different other goal. Satan had a different goal. His goal was destruction of the church. I recently read a, a quote by J.I. Packer and he said this. He said, if I were the devil, one of my first aims would be to stop folks from digging into the word into the Bible. Knowing that it is the word of God, I would do all I could to surround them with spiritual equivalent of pits, thorns, hedges, traps, to frighten people off. At all cost, I should want to keep them from using their minds in a disciplined way. Oh, that's exactly what Satan was doing with the church in Corinth. He brought all kinds of pitfalls that many of them were coming, well, not all of them, came out of other religions, whether Judaism or some type of Greek paganism or Far East religions, they came to the church and they brought that baggage with them at times. And all of that starts to filter in. And, and as we go, you'll start to understand why there were such problems with tongues and prophecies and all kinds of things as we start to open up this book, what Paul was dealing with. The devil was on a full attack on this church. But Paul loved them. And Paul wanted them to turn, listen to this, Paul wanted them to turn from a man-centered church to a Christ-centered church. That's his goal. And you'll see that as we go through it. Well, let me give you three thoughts in a way of an introduction to this book because it's important that we understand this, this city and its people. So number one, the city of Corinth and its people. As much as the New Testament letter and probably more, um, this, this letter here, it's so significant that you understand the city this church was in. Because it plays this profound influence on understanding Paul's letter to the church. I think so often churches have looked to 1 Corinthians to try to figure out things. 
What do we do with tongues? What do we do with prophecy? What do, what do we do with the, the spiritual gifts that are given that so many want to exercise even today? How do we handle this? And they, they look to 1 Corinthians trying to solve that, and yet they miss the context of the letter. And they miss the context of where this church is, and that helps us understand so many things Paul says and helps us put it into right context so we don't abuse those things. Well, Corinth was located at the beginning of a four and a half mile wide land bridge. And we looked at this last week. I think we have a map that's up there. Um, and, and there where he crosses from Athens over to Corinth, that was a bridge, a land bridge that was there. And, and that's, that was kind of the center of so many things. It, it controlled both land and water, commercial traffic from Italy to Asia. And, and due to the threats of piracy and, and difficulties on the sea, all the commercial traffic would, instead of going around Caesarea and around Asia there, they would cut through there. And it helped protect them. And, and it was almost a 200-mile detour that they were able to save. So, so all the traffic between northern and southern Greece would pass through Corinth. Now, Corinth had a large slave population and slave labor, and so they would take those ships instead of going down around the horn down there and make its way up and fight piracy and difficult seas that are on the bottom of that. They would take slaves, and they would take those ships, and they made rollers, and they would roll ships four miles across. It was an amazing thing, amazing feat of engineering that they did, and they found that it was actually more economical to do that than try to sail around the end because of the loss of so many ships. Now, in the 6th century BC, there was a canal started. Um, and it was originally designed all the way back to Nero in the 1st century, but it's finally completed in the 19th century. Just uh, oh, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, in my doing some research on Corinth, um, I watched um, either on Smithsonian Channel or History Channel, I brought up, they showed this canal that is finished. And it's worth going and watching it. This canal is just a marvel of engineering that they've cut through there. And huge ships go down through this thing now. But this was all started back in the first century by Nero's idea. And it took 19 centuries to bring it about. Now the city, um, the history of the city is first seen as a Greek establishment in the golden years of, of the Greek ruling of Athens and the uh, in, all the way to the 5th century. You remember Babylon, Babylon was the world superpower. Then they were taken over by the Mede-Persian armies. And then Greeks and then Romans and so forth. And so at one point this was a strong, strong Greek colony. And they had control of that. But along about the 2nd century BC, the Romans came to power. And they came and they absolutely destroyed Corinth. In fact, it laid dormant for almost 100 years. But in 44 BC, Julius Caesar established it as a Roman colony. He had two reasons. One, he knew it would bring him a lot of money. There was a ton of local and international trade that needed to come through there. And he knew the taxation would bring him tremendous money. The other one was, as you can notice in the map, it's a great defense. They could defend their places that they wanted to guard in those different bays there through this area. And they made great defenses at either side of those bays there. The city of Corinth was supplied with water from springs, so it had plenty of fresh water where people wouldn't get sick, and so this established great growth. Growth just flourished here. It became the site of the second most popular games next to the Olympics, the Isthmian Games. This was a, another kind of Olympic-type game process because so many people were there. Most of it was 
supplied, most of the people were supplied by the repopulation of Rome, they would do. Rome would fill up with all kinds of people, and, and so the rulers in Rome would kick them out. They gave them a title. They called them freemen, and they were, they were a status just be above a slave. And, and they would kick them out, and most of them would go over to Corinth because they could find work there. And it was Rome's way of getting rid of troublemakers. Rome did this often. Rome was, uh, it, it was you know, the greatest power in the world at the time. But they would just transplant people. Just You didn't have a say in it, you were gone. Much like uh, Europe did as they took people to Australia. Um, they did the same thing in their prison systems, right? They would take prisoners and put them on other islands. Or if they couldn't do that, the maritime prison where Paul was at, at the end of his life, they had a way of flooding that prison and drowning all the prisoners in sewage. And that was the prison that Paul was in as he writes for his cloak and his, and his scrolls at the end of his life as most likely where he was before he was probably later beheaded. So this was Rome's way of getting rid of people and moving them off. And Corinth would inherit these. Now, these free men, they said this was a great opportunity. In Rome, they worked for very little. But in Corinth, they could actually make some money. And there they would find the new cultures and religions and philosophy and, and all kinds of art that would go on. And even Far East mystic religions made their way into Corinth and were very welcome. Rome looked, used its strong legal system there. Rome had a great law and legal process that took place, not always perfect or fair, but it helped keep things uh, in the diversity moving along. Since Corinth lacked a, a sitting governor all the time, they, they had a pretty good taxation. They were not, the people weren't broke from high taxes, and so they could, they could gain wealth. And there was just this fierce, independent spirit within the people. Not all struck it rich, though. Um, and that's why there was thousands and thousands of these free men and these slaves that made up the bulk of the labor. But I read one quote. They said, if you had to be a freeman and you had to be a slave, do it in Corinth because you can gain wealth there. And so you can see the influences that this city had. And as often the case, when you mix wealth and uh, prosperity together, guess what comes? Immorality and false religion. They always follow those things. Immorality and wealth always run together. And immorality and false religion run together. And of course, Corinth becomes the center of the immorality of the conquered world. The Aristophanes, they would call themselves, they coined a phrase. And they called themselves Corinthianzos, Corinthianzos meaning if, you were, if you're a Corinthian, you were to act like a fornicator. It was a term that was equal to you're a fornicator if you're a Corinthian. That was the way they coined themselves and were happy. Downtown, in the middle of town, there was a wall that has been discovered where human reproductive parts were offered to their gods time after time because venereal diseases were so out of control in the city. In the center of all of this mess was the temple of Aphrodite. One time there was over a thousand temple prostitutes who committed sexual acts and gave demonic prophecies, towering nearly over 2,000 feet in the outside of town was Acropolis. And this is where her temple rested, the goddess of love, they called. At night, the temple prostitutes would flood into the city and apply their immoral trade. 
It isn't hard to do some research. You can look at this yourself. The oracles of Delphi were there. They were part of that temple priest work. They were women who believed that they were endowed by the gods to give prophecy. And they had caves and places they lived in. And later they've discovered that there's gases that are released from the earth there that cause hallucinations. And, of course, that's where all the prophecies were coming from, from these women of, of just immorality and demonic and all of that. See, you start to understand why Paul's dealing with some of these difficult issues. Because some of those people got saved and they made their way into the church. And they, they, they weren't discipled. And so you have people who believed in Jesus, but were coming to the church carrying tremendous baggage. And there was difficulty after difficulty. I read one report where the modern-day archaeological findings have uncovered at least 26 separate sacred places that were devoted to gods of the Romans, the Greeks, pantheons, and many other gods and lords of mystic cults. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul addresses this. It's a fascinating little passage here as we begin to continue to learn the history of this church in the city that they're in. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4. He's dealing with liberty and the abuse of liberty and meat offered to idols and how to do that. And we'll get into more of the context here we get in here. But I just kind of want you to catch how difficult things were in this city. Verse 40 says, Therefore, concerning um, in eating the things sacrificed to idols. We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and there is no God but one. He's very clear on this, right? You're raised in Corinth, all you see is idols. All you hear about is pagan gods and, and small g gods right everywhere you go, so he makes that clear. But listen to what he says here. Verse 5. For even if there, uh, excuse me, for even if there is if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or earth, and any of you that remember your Greek mythology, right? You could have all the gods of lightning and storms and suns and all of that. They're, that's what they're all raised and brought up here with. Even if these were true, whether in heaven or in earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Now he kind of flips it. Yeah, there really are because they bow down to all kinds of things, right? And then he says in verse 6, yet for us, now, I like that us. That's a personal pronoun there. For the believer, for the one who has placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is but one God, the Father from whom all things, and we exist for him. Boy, he's starting to separate out that. Don't forget God saved you out of this. And then he says, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, he's, he's, this and is connecting them in equality by whom are all things, and we exist through him. He gives the same title to the Lord Jesus Christ. God is one. Our triune God is one. And he begins to teach them the Trinity here. And you can see that this was just a huge problem within the church. All the evidence suggests that Paul was planting a church in modern-day San Francisco. I, I just don't know how to put it. I know maybe y'all haven't been there, but I lived real close. And um, I remember one day we were taking the boys to a ball game, and, you know, they're just little. And so we're driving, heading for um, the ballpark at that time. And little did we know it was ride your bike naked in San Francisco. You know, and, of course, we're going, boys, look at that over there, you know, <laughs> trying to... It's just debauchery in so many places. Now, there are some churches there that are, that are planning there. They're doing marvelous work. But, oh, my goodness, it isn't hard to understand how difficult this place was. As you study Acts and 1 Corinthians and even some of Romans, 
particularly the first couple of chapters, it appears that Corinth church mirrored the world. It isn't hard to see that as you study the Bible. And they mirrored it in several ways. They mirrored it ethnically. They mirrored it socially. And even in diversity, they mirrored it. And with all the struggles that come with all that, that was in the church. Paul reminds them that they're unique, that they're diverse. He says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, identified in Christ, all of us. He uses a strong word, all of us. And then he, then he tells what that all means. Whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit. So you have a extremely diverse church. And I love the diversity, and I see our church becoming more diverse as God moves people here. He's gathering people from every walk of life, and I think that's wonderful. And when you look at 1 Corinthians, you find things like Jews, Aquila and Priscilla and Crispus. They were Latin-influenced names, but they were Jews. We know they're Jews. We know how they defended the gospel according to the law, uh, from the law, and the law was fulfilled in Christ. You have Romans like Fortunus and Aquarius uh, and Gaius and Titus Justus. Those guys are all Roman. Then you have Greeks like Stephanos and Archaeus and, and Erastus. These, these are all men mentioned in this, in this book, in this letter. And we see the diversity, Jews, Romans, Greeks, all in this church. And so the church was diverse. And that brought problems if Christ isn't in the center of their diversity, right? Because now you have everybody holding to their own things because Christ unifies the church also was not dominated by the rich. And the rich were there, and they played a role, but they were not dominated by it. We know this because 1 Corinthians 1.26 says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, nor many mighty, nor many noble. And as is the case, most of the time it's difficult for wealthy to come to know Christ. And not because of their own desires, but but from whatever God's doing, it's, it's a difficult thing. It's hard for that eye of that needle. And so it seems that the church was made up of many slaves. 1 Corinthians 7.21, he says, If you were called a slave, remain there. Be content with what God has done. He deals with the different places in life, how to glorify Christ wherever you're at, in whatever walk of life you have. There was also some class division, though, within it. This is when I get done, we're going to spend time remembering the Lord's death and burial uh, today and as we take the table together. But there was great division, and we'll look at 1 Corinthians, and we'll see that there was tension between the church. The wealthy would eat, and they were using the Lord's table as, as a meal. And they wouldn't wait for the slaves who were working. Sunday was not a day off for them. It was a working day, and, and they wouldn't wait for them, and so there was great division among them. Of course, immorality had breached the church as well. And you repeatedly hear Paul deal with immorality. He says things like this, 1 Corinthians 6.20, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. It's one of the overarching themes through it. What are you doing with your body? You know, oh, we're, we're spirit. God saved our spirit. Our, our bodies are separate. That agnostic view had made its way in. Paul says, no, no, your body's a gift from God. What are you doing with it? He challenges the church over and over because of the immorality that made its way in. So there's Corinth. Who wants to go plant a church with me there? Who's ready to go? Who already take your family to something like that? See how important it is when we send missionaries out, we stand with them? We don't abandon them? 
we walk with them, we give to them, we help in every way. You know, we have missionaries doing this around the world. And yet some feel so alone at times because their church does not understand where God has sent them. Second thought, number two, the occasion and purpose of 1 Corinthians. The occasion and purpose of 1 Corinthians. Well, there were at least three visits by Paul to the church in Corinth. We know he went there three times. One is in Acts 18. We looked at that last week. I wanted to set that as the foundation of understanding how it got planted, right? So Acts 18 tells us in the second missionary journey how he made his way all the way, and that's where he ended up in Corinth to start the church. But then there's what is called, referringly, to the painful visit. (laughs) Paul made a painful visit to the church in Corinth. And it came after the first letter was written. And it seems the situation in Corinth had grown difficult, way difficult. They were rejecting the Apostle Paul. They were caught up in immorality. They were letting incest in their church and no one was dealing with it. And so Paul makes this quick, a hasty uh, trip to Corinth. He was in Ephesus. He had great work going on in Ephesus. He leaves Ephesus to go and deal with with the difficulties of the church. We would see it as when your elders respond to church discipline. You know, maybe there's a service plan, there's something going, and something stops. And because there's, a, there's something that has to be dealt with, this is exactly the way Paul dealt with this. And so there was called the painful visit. And he came and he admonished them greatly. And you know, they didn't respond very well to that. Um, later, we see that repentance comes and and change happens. And then the third visit is after 2 Corinthians is written, and it's a totally different visit. Repentance had come. They were walking with God. Good things were going on, and Paul returns after the writing of 2 Corinthians. There's also four letters written to the church. Do you know that? Well, there's four that we know about. Only two are inspired. Two are mentioned that are uninspired, but doubtlessly full of truth, right? There's what's called the previous letter. He'll talk about that. In 1 Corinthians, he'll talk about a letter he sent to them. Now, we see evidence of that in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with immoral immoral people. So right there you go. They've already had a letter written by the Apostle Paul. Stop hanging around with the immoral people. And that doesn't mean that you don't work. I mean, doubtless they all had jobs, right? So they worked, right? But the, the verbs are more that you're engaged in them in an immoral way. And you're allowing it to take place in the church. And so he talks about that this was actually written before. So there was a previous letter. And it was, certainly it's not inspired by the Holy Spirit, but doubtlessly it was full of truth. And that's one of the lost letters. And I'm really glad we don't find it because people would start whole churches on that letter. Then he writes, um, then he writes 1 Corinthians. And he writes us somewhere around 54, the spring of 54 AD or 55 AD. There's discussions on which... Um, year it was written, but somewhere in that. And then between 1 Corinthians um, and, and, and then a final letter, he write, writes a severe letter. So the previous letter was difficult. He has to write a severe letter that's not inspired, meaning it doesn't make it into the canon of scriptures, but he writes them another letter. And I imagine there was quite a few letters that went, but this one is also mentioned. And Paul had determined to write this letter because obviously there's, there's a tone to it, and it cost him greatly. They nailed him for this. They responded very poorly to this. 
But by the grace of God, he sends this letter after he had written 1 Corinthians, after he had written a previous one. And over time, it's over time it seems that this severe letter and Paul's visits, this group comes around. In fact, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 2, 4. He says, For out of much affliction and anguish of my heart, I wrote to you with many tears. Not so that you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. He, he's referring to this letter. It was a hard letter to write to you. Have you ever dealt with somebody who's in deep sin? Have you ever had to go to them? Have you ever had to sit down and confront a first step church discipline or second step or whatever? You know, that's things pastors just, I don't want to use the word hate, but we don't like it at all. Because most of the time they go, they go oh, pastor, thanks for doing that. You're such a great man. Most of the time, that sin has caused them to hate you now. And the last thing they want to see is you showing up. And so this was difficult on Paul. He said, my, it was much affliction and anguish of my heart I wrote to you. 2 Corinthians 7, 8, he refers to this letter as well. He said, though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, he, it was hard for him to write it, for I see that the letter caused you sorrow though only for a little while. And there he begins to say, you start to respond to it. And we did. We do see. And as we, if we get to the book of 2 Corinthians someday, we'll realize that there was a great change. And then, of course, the fourth letter is 2 Corinthians that's written. Now, the immediate occasion for this inspired letter of 1 Corinthians is a response to their letter. Do you know they wrote Paul back a letter? They, they responded to Paul. And, and so Paul starts to answer questions about marriage and singleness, about food offered to idols, about public worship and spiritual gifts. And the church in Corinth was struggling to handle and resolve these issues. But what but greatly disturbed Paul, more than the letters that he was receiving, was the news he was receiving. What was coming out of the, of the Corinth church was disturbing sinful conduct of other believers. And he's troubled. He's troubled by this tendency on the part of the members to break away from this pagan society, to be the church set apart, right? The word sanctified means set apart. They weren't set apart. He's troubled by this. And so the Apostle Paul spends the first six chapters dealing with things that aren't even in the letter that they're asking about. You'll see the phrase, now concerning this, concerning this. That starts in chapter 7. And now he's dealing with what they wrote him. But for the first six chapters, he has to deal with stuff that he's hearing about coming. Factions. Oh, we're Paul. Oh, we're Apollos. And the church is being divided on men, not Christ. <laughs> and so he has to deal with all of this that's coming his way. After Paul deals with these sinful evils in the church, he now turns to those matters that are written of him, and he starts to deal with them one by one. But you know what? One of the greatest passages that we have is the passage on 15 on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is our, our greatest statement on the resurrection in all of the Bible. And you go, well, why is that there? Because remember, they were highly connected before, um, before they became the church of Jesus Christ. They were highly connected to the synagogues. And guess who was teaching in the synagogues? Sadducees. Sadducees rejected the resurrection. They rejected a bodily resurrection of a believer. Ah, oh, it's a spirit. God doesn't want that sinful mass. We as New Testament Christians believe that God will raise your body someday. 
You know, so many people are just confused about that. Polls are taken and Christians go, oh, I don't think that's a big deal. I don't, I, I, I don't think my body will be raised. 1 Corinthians 15 takes that on head on. And he says, if Christ isn't raised, we live in vain. And if he's not raised, you're not going to be raised. And he goes on to work very hard on that. You know, that really takes and robs the joy out of Christianity. That you're just some kind of spirit being floating around out there. And that there's real no identity to you in Christ. Paul took that head on. Christian, what will your life be like in death? Will you still glorify God in death? I want a, co a coffin. This is my personal opinion. I want a coffin burial because I think even in death I can say, yeah, put me in the ground because Christ is coming back for my body. And I love that about it. I don't think it's wrong to be cremated or anything like that. But I think that's what Paul's after. Look, don't catch on to the paganism of this world. Set your body apart for Christ. It's such a beautiful thing. Uh, we'll get into that and have a great time as we look into those truths as well. Finally, a Christ-centered apostle and a worldly church. Christ-centered apostle and a worldly church. As noted, the church was plagued with immorality and idolatry of the city. And this led to sin of pride and arrogance and entitlement. <laughs> so what, the, what here we see, and, and you'll hear me talk about this as we go through it, is there's points of contention. And these are points that work their way down through. And I, I just want to briefly just mention just a few, not all of them, but a few in each chapter that Paul deals with. So if you have your Bibles, just we're going to go real quickly through the book of 1 Corinthians. I'm just going to mention a few things. Uh, in, in chapter 1, one of the greatest issues that he deals with is faction. There's faction in the church that rose up early. This was based in pride. I'm of Apollos, I'm of Paul, I'm of Peter, so forth. And it was dividing the church. By the time you get to chapter 2, you begin to realize that Paul had been really beat up. He, he said, look, I came with you with fear and trembling. But as that goes on, he begins to di uh, differentiate between the saved man and the natural man. There he uses that term over and over to show that there's unsaved within the church. Chapter 3, he takes on carnal living. Does anybody remember in the 70s and 80s where the church really got into carnal Christians? They said, well, he's just a carnal Christian. He's saved. He just, he, he's just going to live a carnal Christian. That is so far from what Paul was teaching. Carnality, we may all fall into carnality from time to time, do we not? And maybe, if you're like me, there was a few years where you lived in carnality, even as a Christian. And then God brought repentance to you, and you turned from that sin and so forth. That's the goal of that. So he deals with that carnality of, of separating, hey, this person is either of you or of the church, or he's not. And so chapter 3 is a great chapter that deals with that. Chapter 4, he deals with rejecting God-given authority, particularly the apostolic group. And, and they had... They had rejected him. And he said, look, I'm a servant of Christ. And I stand before him. I really don't care what you think of me. I care more what God thinks of me. And he has to reestablish his authority. Now, now, think about this. If the church can say, oh, Paul, we don't really care what you have to say. Well, now I don't have, I don't have to live up to anything. Paul's writing the word of God. So they're dismissing that. And so we'll look hard at, at God as he sends leadership into us all the time. Five, there's an immoral relationship between a man's wife and, and his son. A really incestuous relationship, and they've not done anything about it. Paul goes, I'm already at step four with this guy. You guys haven't even gotten to step one with him. You're letting it bring a cancer into the church. Chapter six, Christians are suing one another. 
They're given over to wealth. Uh, they have a physical problem. They, they, their bodies are being used in morality. And so he deals with suing one another. Can you imagine a division in a church when you've got somebody on this side and somebody on this side suing each other? But go to the same church? I think we can break that down where you have problems and you haven't solved them. You haven't sought reconciliation. It divides a church, so Paul uh, certainly takes over there. Well, it's chapter 7 that we start to see him finally get around to say, okay, now the things that you wrote to me, now concerning this or that, and he starts to work through this. By the time you get into 7, he's taking on singleness, marriage, and divorce. Now you want to, oh man, that is a passage I, don't, I think we as pastors and counselors we use so often trying to help people understand what biblical singleness is, biblical marriage is, and if they are free to divorce. And that passage takes it on. You go, well, why is it all there? Because it was such a problem. Their marriages resembled the world. They were divorcing and remarrying within the church. They, they used their bodies for godlessness instead of setting their bodies apart as singles. They, they didn't know how to handle intimacy and all of those things. And so Paul takes on in chapter 7. Chapter 8, they were sinning against each other because of their own liberties. Well, that's my liberty. You just, you just have to put up with it. There was no preference for one another. Godly people prefer one another over themselves. We should. And he challenges them. You, you, you use your liberties to, to bring sin into the church. And so he takes that on in chapter 8. Chapter 9, he, he, he in essence says, the love of the world has blinded you to the Christian principles that God has laid down. Chapter 10, there's again a lack of preference for each other and a neglect of submission as he flows into eleven. And, of course, you get into the whole headship, right? And we're going to learn about head coverings. Ladies, should you be wearing them or not? We're going to deal with that. What does the Bible say about that? That's that passage, and it's a beautiful passage, and a little difficult when you first read it, but if we work hard, the Lord will help us understand it. And he's showing submission. You find a church in immoral problems, I'll show you a church that doesn't submit to one another, to authority, to, to husbands and wives, to Christ. And that was the essential problem. And, of course, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 flows down into the abuse of the table. I'm going to show that just in a moment here. 12 reveals the selfish desires and a misuse of spiritual gifts. Remember, a whole different view of tongues and prophecies was in the world. And that's coming into the church. Now, you don't have a full canon yet. You don't have the scriptures fully closed yet in, in all that we have today. And yet this misconception of what tongues was and what spiritual gifts and how they were used is being abused in the church. Paul deals with that. And then chapter 13. The greatest chapter of love in the Bible is in this letter. And I've often thought, they can't even love each other. Let alone handle prophecy and gifts and all kinds of other things. They can't love each other. And, they, and Paul does such a masterful job of taking 1 Corinthians 13 and showing it as a picture of Christ. You take the word love out and put Christ in there and go read that this afternoon. And you'll come away with a picture of love like you've never seen before. Chapter 14, there's no desire for true edification and instruction of the saints. You'll see in chapter 14, when they're trying to speak in tongues and prophesy and all those things, Paul has to tell them how to get in line. They can't even get in line. And so there's such an abuse of these spiritual gifts that were theirs given at that time before the completion of the canon to bring edification and instruction to the church, but they're so selfish they can't even get in line. And yet today that chapter is used so greatly by a charismatic movement that's so far off what the Bible teaches. 
And we'll learn what the Bible really teaches there. Chapter 15, the rejection of the resurrection. I've already mentioned that. Chapter 16, they don't give. And Paul says, look, the little Macedonian church, that's a bunch of mine and, and silver workers up there. They're out giving you who have all the prosperity. And so he challenges them on giving. And then he, he challenges them on their lack of love for the authority that God has put in their life, Paul, Timothy, and others. And then he ends kind of with this verse, chapter 16, verse 13 and 14. Be on alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. It's pretty elementary, isn't it? Because this is where they were. Now, I want to give you some encouragement to finish this out. This book is soaked in the glory of Christ. <laughs> There's a lot of troubles in this. But Paul loves to bring the glory of Christ in this. And he knows how to answer all these church issues with a deep love for Christ in his word. And this letter focuses on the gospel, focuses on Christ crucified. It focuses on Christ risen. You want to beat sin? You, want to, you don't want it to rule and reign in your body? Oh, embrace the cross and the resurrection in his word. That's the only way out. There's no other way out. Well, if this person changes, I wouldn't have the problem. You will never get out of that sin. It's bracing the cross of Jesus Christ, his resurrected person, his authority that he has, all given to us through the word of God. And so God's grace has been bestowed upon this people. And, and Paul wants them to know that Jesus Christ is to be the sinner. And so that every gift that is possessed is due to Christ. And Paul describes salvation as a fellowship with Jesus Christ. Oh, you're going to see that all the way through. He takes on the most difficult issues in every chapter. I, I was planning to do that, but I'm out of time because we're going to move the Lord's table. I was going to show you every chapter where he does this, but I'll do it as we go along. Every chapter, he turns to the Lord Jesus Christ as the answer. Whether it's your immoral behavior, he turns to Christ. Whether it's a way you mishandle the Lord's table or even a potluck, he turns to Christ. Spiritual gifts, prophecies, he turns to Christ. Every time he leads this very difficult church back to Christ, he wants us to love the Lord Jesus Christ and love his word. Well, in closing, before we move to the table, I want you to consider the importance of this letter. I have been wrestling with preaching 1 Corinthians for several years now. I've wanted to preach it. I'm scared of it. <laughs> it's a big book to take on with lots of issues. But the more I studied it, the more I began to say, Lord, I know you're pushing me this way. <laughs> the more I studied his word, the more I knew he was pushing us. And we see what's happening to our nation, but we see where the world has made its way into the church. And we're dealing with the exact same issues. And I want us to be very careful. We, let me make this statement up front. We are not a perfect church. And if anybody wants to uh, tout that, please go somewhere else. We're a church of a bunch of sinners saved by God's grace. And we certainly have our struggles. But but we ha God has blessed us with being a church of the word. And it has saved us from difficult things. But many churches have not been. And, and we deal with this weekly, people call the church. Come with us. And, and most of the time, we're turning to this letter to say, well, that's wrong. That's a wrong view of God. That's a wrong view of, of how you've handled and conducted yourselves. And, and so hear the word of God. Let it speak. And, and often when we question them, they, their churches don't teach the Bible. You know, one of the blessings that I have is preaching verse by verse through the Bible, and so many new people to our church come up and say, we've never heard this before. 
We've never heard somebody go through an entire book and preach the word of God to us. And we are encouraged by that. And so as we go through this and look at this multicultural church and city and, and this rugged individualism that it just in, they're immersed in and this unbiblical behavior that they have and arrogance and the misuse of the Spirit of God and lack of gospel integrity in it, let us realize, oh God, there go us if we don't stick to the Word. And so may we be humble as we address difficult issues throughout this. It's my prayer that our study together through the book of 1 Corinthians will cause us to love Christ and his word more and more as this world and the worldly church collapses around us. That's my prayer. Will you pray with me for those things? Father, thank you for this moment we have together to begin to look at this book. I pray, Lord, you would strengthen us. I pray you would encourage myself and the elders as we study and uh, we would use this wisely, that we would not become boastful or arrogant in any way uh, and maybe think that we're better than others, Lord. Please keep us from that. That's just destructive. But Lord, at the same time, Father, I pray that we would learn greatly. And as we're done with this book, we would say that we now love Christ and his word and his people more than we did when we began it. And we would submit to the word of God. And Lord, we would find great joy in that even in difficult times. Lord, we ask that you bless this time together. Now, as we turn to your table, Lord, be magnified and glorified in this. In Jesus' name, amen.